Chapter Nineteen of Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions by Frank Harris. Chapter Nineteen: His Saint Martin's Summer, His Best Work, Part One. Shortly before he came out of prison, one of Oscar's intimates told me he was destitute, and begged me to get him some clothes. I took the name of his tailor, and ordered two suits. The tailor refused to take the order. He was not going to make clothes for Oscar Wilde. I could not trust myself to talk to the man and therefore sent my assistant editor and friend, Mr. Blanchon, to have it out with him. The tradesman's soul yielded to the persuasiveness of cash in advance. I sent Oscar the clothes and a cheque, and shortly after his release got a letter thanking me. A little later I heard on good authority a story which Oscar afterwards confirmed that when he left Reading Jail, the correspondent of an American paper offered him one thousand pounds for an interview dealing with his prison life and experiences, but he felt it beneath his dignity to take his sufferings to market. He thought it better to borrow than to earn. He is partly to be excused, perhaps, when one remembers that he had still some pounds left of the large sums given him before his condemnation by Miss S., Ross, Moore Aidy, and others. Still his refusal of such a sum as that offered by the New York paper shows how utterly contemptuous he was of money even at a moment when one would have thought money would have been his chief preoccupation. He always lived in the day, and rather heedlessly. As soon as he left prison, he crossed with some friends to France, and went to stay at the Hôtel de la Plage at Berneval, a quiet little village near Dieppe. Monsieur André Gide, who called on him there almost as soon as he arrived, gives a fair mental picture of him at this time. He tells how delighted he was to find in him the Oscar Wilde of old, no longer the sensualist puffed out with pride and good living, but the sweet Wilde of the days before 1891. I found myself taken aback, not two years, he says, but four or five. There was the same dreamy look, the same amused smile, the same voice. He told Monsieur Gide that prison had completely changed him, had taught him the meaning of pity. You know, he went on, how fond I used to be of Madame Bovary but Flaubert would not admit pity into his work, and that is why it has a petty and restrained character about it. It is the sense of pity by means of which a work gains in expanse, and by which it opens up a boundless horizon. Do you know, my dear fellow, 
it was pity which prevented my killing myself during the first six months in prison i was dreadfully unhappy so utterly miserable that i wanted to kill myself but what kept me from doing so was looking at the others and seeing that they were as unhappy as i was and feeling sorry for them oh dear what a wonderful thing pity is and i never knew it he was speaking in a low voice without any excitement have you ever learned how wonderful a thing pity is for my part i thank god every night yes on my knees i thank god for having taught it to me i went into prison with a heart of stone thinking only of my own pleasure but now my heart is utterly broken pity has entered into my heart i have learned now that pity is the greatest and the most beautiful thing in the world and that is why i cannot bear ill-will towards those who caused my suffering and those who condemned me no nor to any one because without them i should not have known all that alfred douglas writes me terrible letters he says he does not understand me that he does not understand that i do not wish every one ill and that every one has been horrid to me no he does not understand me he cannot understand me any more but i keep on telling him that in every letter we cannot follow the same road he has his and it is beautiful i have mine his is that of alcibiades mine is now that of st francis of assisi how much of this is sincere and how much merely imagined and stated in order to incarnate the new ideal to perfection would be hard to say the truth is not so saintly simple as the christianized oscar would have us believe the unpublished portions of de profundis which were read out in the douglas ransom trial prove what all his friends know that oscar wilde found it impossible to forgive or forget what seemed to him personal ill-treatment there are beautiful pages in de profundis pages of sweetest christ-like resignation and charity and no doubt in a certain mood oscar was sincere in writing them but there was another mood in him more vital and more enduring if not so engaging a mood in which he saw himself as one betrayed and sacrificed and abandoned and that he attributed his ruin wholly to his friend and did not hesitate to speak of him as the judas whose shallow selfishness and imperious ill-temper and unfulfilled promises of monetary help had driven a great man to disaster that unpublished portion of de profundis is in essence from beginning to end one long curse of lord alfred douglas an indictment apparently impartial particularly at first but in reality a bitter and merciless accusation showing in oscar wilde a curious want of sympathy even with the man he said he loved 
those who would know oscar wilde as he really was will read that piece of rhetoric with care enough to notice that he reiterates the charge of shallow selfishness with such venom that he discovers his own colossal egotism and essential hardness of heart love we are told suffereth long and is kind beareth all things believeth all things hopeth all things endureth all things that sweet generous all-forgiving tenderness of love was not in the pagan oscar wilde and therefore even his deepest passion never won to complete reconciliation and ultimate redemption in this same talk with m gide oscar is reported to have said that he had known beforehand that a catastrophe was unavoidable there was but one end possible that state of things could not last there had to be some end to it this view i believe is gide's and not oscar's in any case i am sure that my description of him before the trials as full of insolent self-assurance is the truer truth of course he must have had some forebodings he was warned as i've related again and again but he took character colour from his associates and he met queensberry's first attempts at attack with utter disdain he did not realise his danger at all. Gide reports him more correctly as adding, Prison has completely changed me. I was relying on it for that. Douglas is terrible. He cannot understand that, cannot understand that I am not taking up the same existence again. He accuses the others of having changed me i may publish here part of a letter of a prison warder which mr stuart mason reproduced in his excellent little book on oscar wilde he says no more beautiful life had any man lived no more beautiful life could any man live than oscar wilde lived during the short period i knew him in prison he wore upon his face an eternal smile sunshine was on his face sunshine of some sort must have been in his heart people say he was not sincere he was the very soul of sincerity when i knew him if he did not continue that life after he left prison then the forces of evil must have been too strong for him but he tried he honestly tried and in prison he succeeded all this seems to me in the main true oscar's gay vivacity would have astonished any stranger besides the regular hours and scant plain food of prison had improved his health and the solitude and suffering had lent him a deeper emotional life but there was an intense bitterness in him a profound underlying sense of injury which came continually to passionate expression yet as soon as the miserable petty persecution of the prison was lifted from him all the joyous gaiety and fun of his nature bubbled up irresistibly there was no contradiction in this complexity 
a man can hold in himself a hundred conflicting passions and impulses without confusion at this time the dominant chord in oscar was pity for others to my delight the world had evidence of this changed oscar wilde in a very short time on may twenty eighth a few days after he left prison there appeared in the daily chronicle a letter more than two columns in length pleading for the kindlier treatment of little children in english prisons the letter was written because warder martin of reading prison had been dismissed by the commissioners for the dreadful crime of having given some sweet biscuits to a little hungry child i must quote a few paragraphs of this letter because it shows how prison had deepened oscar wilde how his own suffering had made him as shakespeare says pregnant to good pity and also because it tells us what life was like in an english prison in our time oscar wrote i saw the three children myself on the monday preceding my release they had just been convicted and were standing in a row in the central hall in their prison dress carrying their sheets under their arms previous to their being sent to the cells allotted to them they were quite small children the youngest the one to whom the warder gave the biscuits being a tiny chap for whom they had evidently been unable to find clothes small enough to fit i had of course seen many children in prison during the two years during which i was myself confined wandsworth prison especially contained always a large number of children but the little child i saw on the afternoon of monday the seventeenth at reading was tinier than any one of them i need not say how utterly distressed i was to see these children at reading for i knew the treatment in store for them the cruelty that is practised by day and night on children in english prisons is incredible except to those who have witnessed it and are aware of the brutality of the system people nowadays do not understand what cruelty is ordinary cruelty is simply stupidity the prison treatment of children is terrible primarily from people not understanding the peculiar psychology of the child's nature a child can understand a punishment inflicted by an individual such as a parent or guardian and bear it with a certain amount of acquiescence what it cannot understand is a punishment inflicted by society it cannot realize what society is the terror of a child in prison is quite limitless i remember once in reading as i was going out to exercise seeing in the dimly lit cell opposite mine a small boy two warders not unkindly men were talking to him with some sternness apparently or perhaps giving him some useful advice about his conduct one was in the cell with him the other was standing outside 
the child's face was like a white wedge of sheer terror there was in his eyes the terror of a hunted animal the next morning i heard him at breakfast time crying and calling to be let out his cry was for his parents from time to time i could hear the deep voice of the warder on duty telling him to keep quiet yet he was not even convicted of whatever little offence he had been charged with he was simply on remand that i knew by his wearing his own clothes which seemed neat enough he was however wearing prison socks and shoes this showed that he was a very poor boy whose own shoes if he had any were in a bad state justices and magistrates an entirely ignorant class as a rule often remand children for a week and then perhaps remit whatever sentence they are entitled to pass they call this not sending a child to prison it is of course a stupid view on their part to a little child whether he is in prison on remand or after conviction is not a subtlety of position he can comprehend to him the horrible thing is to be there at all in the eyes of humanity it should be a horrible thing for him to be there at all this terror that seizes and dominates the child as it seizes the grown man also is of course intensified beyond power of expression by the solitary cellular system of our prisons every child is confined to its cell for twenty-three hours out of the twenty-four this is the appalling thing to shut up a child in a dimly lit cell for twenty-three hours out of the twenty-four is an example of the cruelty of stupidity if an individual parent or guardian did this to a child he would be severely punished the second thing from which a child suffers in prison is hunger the food that is given to it consists of a piece of usually badly baked prison bread and a tin of water for breakfast at half-past seven at twelve o'clock it gets dinner composed of a tin of coarse indian meal stirabout and at half-past five it gets a piece of dry bread and a tin of water for its supper this diet in the case of a strong man is always productive of illness of some kind chiefly of course diarrhoea with its attendant weakness in fact in a big prison astringent medicines are served out regularly by the warders as a matter of course a child is as a rule incapable of eating the food at all anyone who knows anything about children knows how easily a child's digestion is upset by a fit of crying or trouble and mental distress of any kind a child who has been crying all day long and perhaps half the night in a lonely dimly lit cell and is preyed upon by terror simply cannot eat food of this coarse horrible kind in the case of the little child to whom warder martin gave the biscuits the child was crying with hunger on tuesday morning 
and utterly unable to eat the bread and water served to it for breakfast martin went out after the breakfast had been served and bought the few sweet biscuits for the child rather than see it starving it was a beautiful action on his part and was so recognized by the child who utterly unconscious of the regulation of the prison board told one of the senior warders how kind this junior warder had been to him the result was of course a report and a dismissal i know martin extremely well and i was under his charge for the last seven weeks of my imprisonment i was struck by the singular kindness and humanity of the way in which he spoke to me and to the other prisoners kind words are much in prison and a pleasant good morning or good evening will make one as happy as one can be in prison he was always gentle and considerate a great deal has been talked and written lately about the contaminating influence of prison on young children what is said is quite true a child is utterly contaminated by prison life but this contaminating influence is not that of the prisoners it is that of the whole prison system of the governor the chaplain the warders the solitary cell the isolation the revolting food the rules of the prison commissioners the mode of discipline as it is termed of the life of course no child under fourteen years of age should be sent to prison at all it is an absurdity and like many absurdities of absolutely tragical results this letter i am informed brought about some improvement in the treatment of young children in british prisons but in regard to adults the british prison is still the torture chamber it was in wilde's time prisoners are still treated more brutally there than anywhere else in the civilized world the food is the worst in europe insufficient indeed to maintain health in many cases men are only saved from death by starvation through being sent to the infirmary though these facts are well known punch the pet organ of the british middle class was not ashamed a little while ago to make a mock of some suggested reform by publishing a picture of a british convict with the villainous face of a bill sykes lying on a sofa in his cell smoking a cigar with champagne at hand this is not altogether due to stupidity as oscar tried to believe but to reasoned selfishness punch and the class for which it caters would like to believe that many convicts are unfit to live whereas the truth is that a good many of them are superior in humanity to the people who punish and slander them while waiting for his wife to join him oscar rented a little house the chalet bourgeois about two hundred yards away from the hotel at berneval and furnished it here he spent the whole of the summer writing bathing 
and talking to the few devoted friends who visited him from time to time. Never had he been so happy, never in such perfect health. He was full of literary projects. Indeed, no period of his whole life was so fruitful in good work. He was going to write some biblical plays, one entitled Pharaoh first, and then one called Ahab and Jezebel, which he pronounced Isabel. Deeper problems, too, were much in his mind. He was already at work on the Ballad of Reading Jail, but before coming to that, let me first show how happy the songbird was, and how divinely he sang when the dreadful cage was opened, and he was allowed to use his wings in the heavenly sunshine. Here is a letter from him, shortly after his release, which is one of the most delightful things he ever wrote. Fitly enough, it was addressed to his friend of friends, Robert Ross, and I can only say that I am extremely obliged to Ross for allowing me to publish it. Hotel de la Plage, Berneval, near Dieppe, Monday night, May 31st, 1897. My dearest Robbie, I have decided that the only way in which to get boots properly is to go to France to receive them. The douane charged three francs. How could you frighten me as you did? The next time you order boots, please come to Dieppe to get them sent to you. It is the only way, and it will be an excuse for seeing you. I am going to-morrow on a pilgrimage. I always wanted to be a pilgrim, and I have decided to start early to-morrow to the shrine of Notre-Dame de Liesse. Do you know what Liesse is? it is an old word for joy i suppose the same as letitia laetitia i just heard to-night of the shrine or chapel by chance as you would say from the sweet woman of the auberge who wants me to live always at berneval she says notre dame de liesse is wonderful and helps everyone to the secret of joy I do not know how long it will take me to get to the shrine, as I must walk. But from what she tells me, it will take at least six or seven minutes to get there, and as many to come back. In fact, the chapel of Notre-Dame de Liesse is just fifty yards from the hotel. Isn't it extraordinary? I intend to start after I have had my coffee and then to bathe. Need I say that this is a miracle? I wanted to go on a pilgrimage, and I find the little grey stone chapel of Our Lady of Joy is brought to me. It has probably been waiting for me all these purple years of pleasure, and now it comes to meet me with Lies as its message. I simply don't know what to say. I wish you were not so hard to poor heretics, and would admit that even for the sheep who has no shepherd, there is a Stella Maris to guide it home. But you and more, especially more, treat me as a dissenter. It is very painful and quite unjust. 
yesterday i attended mass at ten o'clock and afterwards bathed so i went into the water without being a pagan the consequence was that i was not tempted by either sirens or mermaidens or any of the green-haired following of glaucus i really think that this is a remarkable thing in my pagan days the sea was always full of tritons blowing conches and other unpleasant things now it is quite different and yet you treat me as the president of mansfield college and after i had canonized you too dear boy i wish you would tell me if your religion makes you happy you conceal your religion from me in a monstrous way you treat it like writing in the saturday review for pollock or dining in wardour street off the fascinating dish that is served with tomatoes and makes men mad i know it is useless asking you so don't tell me i felt an outcast in chapel yesterday not really but a little in exile i met a dear farmer in a cornfield and he gave me a seat on his bunk in church so i was quite comfortable he now visits me twice a day and as he has no children and is rich i have made him promise to adopt three two boys and a girl i told him that if he wanted them he would find them he said he was afraid that they would turn out badly i told him every one did that he really has promised to adopt three orphans he is now filled with enthusiasm at the idea he is to go to the cure and talk to him he told me that his own father had fallen down in a fit one day as they were talking together and that he had caught him in his arms and put him to bed where he died and that he himself had often thought how dreadful it was that if he had a fit there was no one to catch him in his arms it is quite clear that he must adopt orphans is it not i feel that berneval is to be my home i really do notre dame de liesse will be sweet to me if i go on my knees to her and she will advise me it is extraordinary being brought here by a white horse that was a native of the place and knew the road and wanted to see its parents now of advanced years it is also extraordinary that i knew berneval existed and was arranged for me monsieur bonnet wants to build me a chalet one thousand metres of ground i don't know how much that is but i suppose about a hundred miles and a chalet with a studio a balcony a salle à manger a huge kitchen and three bedrooms a view of the sea and trees all for twelve thousand francs four hundred and eighty pounds if i can write a play i am going to have it begun fancy one's own lovely house and grounds in france for four hundred and eighty pounds no rent of any kind pray consider this and approve if you think well of course not till i have done my play 
an old gentleman lives here in the hotel he dines alone in his room and then sits in the sun he came here for two days and has stayed two years his sole sorrow is that there is no theatre monsieur bonnet is a little heartless about this and says that as the old gentleman goes to bed at eight o'clock a theatre would be of no use to him the old gentleman says he only goes to bed at eight o'clock because there is no theatre they argued the point yesterday for an hour i sided with the old gentleman but logic sides with monsieur bonnet i believe i had a sweet letter from the sphinx she gives me a delightful account of ernest subscribing to romaike while his divorce suit was running and not being pleased with some of the notices considering the growing appreciation of ibsen i must say that i am surprised the notices were not better but nowadays everybody is jealous of everyone else except of course husband and wife i think i shall keep this last remark of mine for my play have you got my silver spoon from reggie you got my silver brushes out of humphreys who is bald so you might easily get my spoon out of reggie who has so many or used to have you know my crest is on it it is a bit of irish silver and i don't want to lose it there is an excellent substitute called britannia metal very much liked at the adelphi and elsewhere wilson barrett writes i prefer it to silver it would suit dear reggie admirably walter bizant writes i use none other mr beerbohm tree also writes since i have tried it i am a different actor my friends hardly recognize me so there is obviously a demand for it i am going to write a political economy in my heavier moments the first law i lay down is whenever there exists a demand there is no supply this is the only law that explains the extraordinary contrast between the soul of man and man's surroundings civilizations continue because people hate them a modern city is the exact opposite of what everyone wants nineteenth-century dress is the result of our horror of the style the tall hat will last as long as people dislike it dear robbie i wish you would be a little more considerate and not keep me up so late talking to you it is very flattering to me and all that but you should remember that i need rest good night you will find some cigarettes and some flowers by your bedside coffee is served below at eight o'clock do you mind if it is too early for you i don't at all mind lying in bed an extra hour i hope you will sleep well you should as lloyd is not on the veranda tuesday morning nine thirty the sea and sky are opal 
no horrid drawing-master's line between them just one fishing-boat going slowly and drawing the wind after it i am going to bathe six o'clock bathed and have seen a chalet here which i wish to take for the season quite charming a splendid view a large writing-room a dining-room and three lovely bedrooms besides servants rooms and also a huge balcony in this blank space he had roughly drawn a ground plan of the imagined chalet i don't know the scale of the drawing but the rooms are larger than the plan is one salle à manger two salon three balcony all on ground floor with steps from balcony to ground the rent for the season or year is what do you think thirty-two pounds of course i must have it i will take my meals here separate and reserved table it is within two minutes walk do tell me to take it when you come again your room will be waiting for you all i need is a domestique the people here are most kind i made my pilgrimage the interior of the chapel is of course a modern horror but there is a black image of notre dame de liesse the chapel is as tiny as an undergraduate's room at oxford i hope to get the cure to celebrate mass in it soon as a rule the service is only held there in july and august but i want to see a mass quite close there is also another thing i must write to you about i adore this place the whole country is lovely and full of forest and deep meadow it is simple and healthy if i live in paris i may be doomed to things i don't desire i am afraid of big towns here i get up at seven-thirty i am happy all day i go to bed at ten i am frightened of paris i want to live here i have seen the terrain it is the best here and only one left i must build a house if i could build a chalet for twelve thousand francs five hundred pounds and live in a home of my own how happy i would be i must raise the money somehow it would give me a home quiet retired healthy and near england if i live in egypt i know what my life would be if i live in the south of italy i know i should be idle and worse i want to live here do think over this and send me over the architect monsieur bonnet is excellent and is ready to carry out any idea i want a little chalet of wood and plaster walls the wooden beams showing and the white square of plaster diapering the framework like i regret to say shakespeare's house like old english sixteenth-century farmers houses so your architect has me waiting for him as he is waiting for me do you think the idea absurd 
i got the chronicle many thanks i see the writer on prince a two eleven does not mention my name foolish of her it is a woman i as you the poem of my days are away am forced to write i have begun something that i think will be very good i breakfast to-morrow with the stannards what a great passionate splendid writer john strange winter is how little people understand her work bootle's baby is an oeuvre symboliste it is really only the style and the subject that are wrong pray never speak lightly of bootle's baby indeed pray never speak of it at all i never do yours oscar please send a chronicle to my wife mrs c m holland maison bangerelle bevet près de neuchatel just marking it and if my second letter appears mark that also cut out the letter and enclose it in an envelope to mr arthur crethenden poste restante g p o reading with just these lines dear friend the enclosed will interest you there is also another letter waiting in the post office for you from me with a little money ask for it if you have not got it yours sincerely c three three i have no one but you dear robbie to do anything of course the letter to reading must go at once as my friends come out on wednesday morning early this letter displays almost every quality of oscar wilde's genius in perfect efflorescence his gaiety joyous merriment and exquisite sensibility who can read of the little chapel to notre dame de liesse without emotion quickly to be changed to mirth by the sunny humour of those delicious specimens of self-advertisement mr beerbohm tree also writes since i have tried it i am a different actor my friends hardly recognise me this letter is the most characteristic thing oscar wilde ever wrote a thing produced in perfect health at the topmost height of happy hours more characteristic even than the importance of being earnest for it has not only the humour of that delightful farce comedy but also more than a hint of the deeper feeling which was even then forming itself into a masterwork that will form part of the inheritance of men forever End of part one of chapter nineteen. Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey.